Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. On May 8, 1993, five young singers took the stage to perform at a special grad night concert at the SeaWorld theme park in Orlando, Florida. They'd only been together as a group for a few weeks, but when they jogged onto the stage in their matching leather jackets, they had an air of confidence that outmatched their experience. Teenagers screamed in anticipation. The lights flashed and the music started. The five young singers began their debut performance with an up-tempo cover of the classic Temptation song, Get Ready. They were looking more Motown than O-Town. The 3,000 teenagers in the audience had no idea that these five young singers on stage were about to take the pop world by storm, eventually selling over 130 million records, making them the most successful boy band of all time. That night marked the beginning of one of the most successful eras in music history. On this episode of History of the 90s, we're looking back at the magical era of 90s boy bands as we dive deep into the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and the man who created them and eventually conned them out of millions of dollars. Of course, boy bands existed long before the 90s. Every generation seems to have its own iconic boy band, even if that's not what they were called at the time. In the 60s, we had the Beatles, who could be considered the OG of boy bands. In fact, they helped birth the concept of the good-looking boy group dressed in matching outfits performing catchy pop songs for legions of screaming teenage girls. But they weren't the only guys turning heads in the 60s. As Beatlemania was making its way to the U.S., Barry Gordy was building the Motown record label in Detroit, and he'd soon launch a string of all-male groups, including The Temptations, The Four Tops, and of course, the legendary Jackson 5. In the 70s, the fun continued with the Osmonds and the tartan-wearing Bay City Rollers, who made us all love S-A-T-U-R-D-A-Y night. But it wasn't until the 1980s that we got our first taste of the type of boy band that would become the model for all future boy bands. In fact, the 80s is when the term boy band was first used, when referring to a new style of musical group. It started with Menudo, a new edition, and then fully took hold with these guys. Step by step, ooh baby, gonna get to you girl. New Kids on the Block were actually modeled after New Edition and created by New Edition's ex-producer Maurice Starr. New Kids hit their peak in the late 80s and early 90s, and according to Forbes magazine, by 1991, they were making more money than Madonna or Michael Jackson. Because New Kids on the Block started like merchandising in a, in a dramatic way, they sort of got to that level of total pop culture ubiquity that is sort of central to a successful boy band story. That's Maria Sherman. She's a music writer and culture critic, as well as the author of Larger Than Life, a book about the history of boy bands. Sherman says New Kids set the mold for the modern boy band. 
The modern boy band was different than their predecessors, mainly because they didn't play instruments. In addition to some killer harmonizing, they focused on the dance moves. Their high-energy choreographed shows and music videos were the blueprint for the type of boy band that exists to this day. New Kids signed their first record deal in 1986, but they didn't really make it big until their second album, Hang In Tough, was released in 1988. With two top 40 hits, You Got It, The Right Stuff, and I'll Be Loving You Forever, Hang In Tough was certified platinum seven times. By June 1990, when they released their fourth album, Step by Step, New Kids were at a peak. The album's title track spent three weeks at number one on the Billboard Hot 200, and it became the group's best-selling record. But there's a long-standing belief that boy bands have a peak shelf life of about three years. So right on schedule, new kids fizzled out in the early 90s, and then it seemed for a time we were in a boy band dead zone. With grunge music, gangsta rap, and hip-hop taking over, there wasn't really an appetite for dancing, harmonizing pretty boys. Behind the scenes, though, a guy by the name of Lou Pearlman was hard at work creating the next big boy band. Before we go down that road, let's take a moment to consider what makes a boy band, or more importantly, what made a boy band in the 90s? The 90s teen pop boy band was usually made up of three to five performers who were hand-selected by a producer or a Svengali-type dude and followed a well-crafted formula. First of all, there were the boy band archetypes. The dangerous rebel bad boy, the hunky heartthrob, the baby-faced cute one, the responsible one who acts like an older brother to the rest of the group, and the shy, quiet one. Some performers embodied more than one of these archetypes, but each one was represented in a 90s boy band. The rest of the formula involved highly crafted pop tunes marketed to teens, combined with smooth ballads that could make hearts melt, and killer dance moves inspired by Michael Jackson. Then there was the hair. Can you say frosted tips? And the clothes, usually matching and in hindsight a little bit silly. It was pretty like baggy, baggy pants, baggy tops. Everything was baggy. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of denim as made famous by the Britney Spears, Justin Timberlake, um, American Music Awards look in 2001. Um, there's also a lot of leather. Everyone's wearing um, Timberland shoes. Kangol hats are big. A style note, oh, Cool J continues on to this day. Um, a lot of that, which, you know, at the like nowadays I would think is, is kind of comical, but at the time I thought it was very cool. Most importantly, there is the fan base. This is critical. In the end, a boy band isn't really defined by who they are, but who their fans are. If they attract hysterical fangirls, and yes, fanboys, who scream and cry at their live shows or outside their hotels, then yes, they are a certified boy band. This kind of reaction to boy bands started with the Beatles and continues today with BTS. It almost seems like a rite of passage for some teenagers as they're developing their sense of an adult identity. And it's music that young people select for themselves. It's like an outward autonomous decision. And I think with any art form, especially in youth, it can be an element of identity curation, if you like. 
um, it becomes really foundational in your taste. And then also just there's something so impactful and meaningful in picking something for yourself. It's like boy bands emerge when young people are no longer just listening to what's on the radio or what's in their immediate environment or what their mom is playing for them. And like after school, they're really making that decision for themselves. The mostly young girl fan base is what propels a boy band into superstardom. But it's also what makes the boy band a target of disdain from just about everyone else. It's why mainstream music critics and others tend to look down at boy bands. Young girls aren't taken that seriously by society, so why should the music they like be any different? Maria says there's another reason that boy bands have also been looked down on. They're always sort of written off as being um, manufactured, which I think is kind of a silly designation because most pop music isn't written by the performers themselves. Um, if pop performers are instrumentalists, they're probably not performing on stage They're probably dancing. And that's true to the boy band sphere as well. Um, so I think because they exist outside of those like Western music canon, like value systems of songwriting and instrumentalists and, and all of that sort of thing, they've never been taken seriously. And um, I, I hope that changes. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's get back to Lou Pearlman, the businessman who in early 1992 decided he was going to create the next big boy band. To find his future stars, Pearlman put an ad in the Orlando Sentinel that said, Producer seeks male teen singers that move well between 16 and 19 years of age. Wanted for a new kids type singing dance group. Send photo or bio of any kind. You may remember from the episode we did on Girl Power that the Spice Girls also answered a similar ad in a British trade magazine looking for performers for an all-female pop group. The guys behind that ad were talent managers. But Perlman had zero experience in the entertainment industry, never mind as a producer. He was a businessman entrepreneur who owned a blimp advertising company and a small charter airline. Perlman's business operated out of a hangar in Kissimmee, Florida, and he lived large in a 6,000-square-foot mansion in Orlando. On the surface, he appeared to be successful and very rich. It would later be revealed he funded the airline and his extravagant lifestyle through a massive illegal Ponzi scheme. But that revelation wouldn't come for many years. In the early 90s, when Perlman put that ad in the paper looking for singers, the dark truth about his businesses wasn't known yet, and he seemed on the up and up. Perlman got the idea to put together a boy band after crossing paths with the guys in New Kids on the Block. They had chartered a couple of planes through Perlman's company. And when he heard this group of young singers was selling $800 million in merchandise and $200 million in concert tickets, he saw gigantic dollar signs. So despite his lack of experience, he went about gathering together teenage boys who could make up a band. 
And I think every element of this is, is so just like genius marketing because it would be so much more challenging to do this in like a Los Angeles or or New York where like the talent pool would be um, wanting to go to like major labels that are established. In Orlando, you have kids who are working at Disney World and they're just like trying to get their name out there in any way that they can probably from working class backgrounds, probably don't have that like Hollywood know-how that a kid in one of those cities would already possess. Among the first to reply was Denise McLean, whose 14-year-old son AJ was an aspiring singer. After AJ auditioned for Pearlman in his living room, he became the group's first member. Initially, dozens of teenage boys auditioned at Pearlman's home, and then in January 1993, Roland held an open casting call that attracted hundreds of young performers who danced and sang at his blimp hangar in Kissimmee. One of those who showed up to the audition was a 13-year-old cutie by the name of Nick Carter. Nick sang the Richard Mark song, Take This Heart, but in a recent interview with ABC News, Carter said he didn't have any cool choreography planned, so he just sort of bopped along while he was singing. He must have done something right because Carter was offered a position in the yet-to-be-named boy band. Incidentally, that day, Carter also auditioned for the Mickey Mouse Club, and he got offered a $50,000 contract to join the show. And lucky for his future fans, he turned it down. After Carter, another three young men were selected to fill out the group. 17-year-old Brian Luttrell, his 20-year-old cousin Kevin Richardson, and 18-year-old Howie DeRoe. And it should be noted that initially Howie was the lead vocalist, but he was later shoved aside for Brian, whose sound the record company preferred. With the group assembled, Perlman came up with the name, the Backstreet Boys, which he said was a nod to Orlando's Backstreet Flea Market. After just a few weeks of practice, the guys got matching haircuts and matching outfits, and then in May 1993, performed at their first live show at that grad night party at SeaWorld that I mentioned off the top. Here's a clip of the guys right after they got off stage. What's up, guys? Hey, come here, come here. All of us at our very first real public exposure. Hey, well, See you all, Grand Night 83. Yeah. Thank you. Woo. Hey, wait, 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 wait. We feel good. We look good. good. We're happy. We're never going to forget where we came from. That's Kevin saying, we're never going to forget where we came from. Like he already knew the journey they were about to take into superstardom. After the show, Lou Pearlman sent a tape of the performance around to people in the industry. It caught the eye of Johnny Wright and his then-wife, Donna, who were the road managers for New Kids on the Block. After watching the tape, the Wrights were convinced the boys had something special and joined Pearlman's team. Pearlman set the guys up in a house in Orlando, and for months they practiced singing and dancing in his overheated blimp hangar in Kissimmee. Then Wright convinced Perlman to send the boys out on a tour, performing at middle schools and high schools, sometimes playing three shows a day in three different schools. According to Wright, the guys would bust out on the gym floor and the girls would lose their mind, even though they had never heard of them before. Initially, Backstreet Boys had a hard time getting a record deal. Radio was still all about grunge and rap. But eventually they were signed by Jive Records, which had been one of the premier labels for 80s hip-hop, releasing iconic records from A Tribe Called Quest and DJ Jazzy Jeff and The Fresh Prince. In the 90s, they would not only launch Backstreet Boys, but also NSYNC and Britney Spears. 
Around this time, Perlman pressured the five young singers to sign a contract with him that was heavily weighted in his favor. In addition to being their manager-producer, Perlman made himself the sixth member of the band, meaning that he would reap additional financial rewards. This is a very important piece of information I want you to remember for later in the story. With a record deal signed, the boys needed to find good material. So Jive sent Backstreet Boys to Sweden to work with legendary producers Dennis Pop and Max Martin. At the time, Pop and Martin had already written hits together for the group Ace of Bass and the singer Robin. Pop died in 1998 at the age of 35. But Martin would go on to become one of the most successful hitmakers of his generation, writing the Britney Spears song Baby One More Time and co-writing Katy Perry's Roar, as well as Shake It Off with Taylor Swift. The first song Martin and Pop wrote for the Backstreet Boys was We've Got It Going On. The song was a huge hit in Europe, especially Germany, which seems to have a special affinity for boy bands. But U.S. radio stations essentially ignored the group's first single, which only peaked in the U.S. at 69 on the Billboard Hot 100. So in the spring of 1996, the band released their self-titled debut album, Everywhere But the U.S., selling over 11 million copies, mainly in Europe, but some in Canada as well. They followed up with a tour of Germany, Switzerland, Austria, and France, where fans were totally crazy for them. Howie D told Billboard in 2017 they would go all around Europe and they could barely get on the airplane. He said, you would think it was like the Beatles or Michael Jackson, fans going crazy. And then all of a sudden, we'd land in America and it'd be like, chirp, chirp, nobody in the room. It was so bad that the boys started calling the U.S. no fan land. But that was about to change. A song was released that was co-written by Max Martin for the group. It would become not only their breakthrough hit in the United States, but also one of their most iconic songs of all time. When the single and the <clears throat> sexy video for Quit Playing Games With My Heart were released in 1997, it shot to number two on Billboard's Hot 100, and overnight, the band became an international sensation, this time including the United States. Quit Playing Games With My Heart was the second single off the group's self-titled U.S. debut album, which sold 14 million copies in the States. It continued to spin off hit singles until 1999, with songs like Everybody, Backstreet's Back, and All I Have to Give, which both charted in the top five. The North American market was transitioning from grunge and rap to a more pop-friendly age, with groups like Hanson and the Spice Girls topping the charts. The time had finally arrived for the Backstreet Boys to break through in their home country. There was something else happening around this time that helped Backstreet Boys and their future rivals NSYNC explode in popularity. What's going on? Carson Daly here. Total Request Live, moments away. Top 10 most requested videos in all of the land. That's right, you've picked them. Plus on today's show, John Norris... MTV debuted the iconic video countdown show Total Request Live on September 14, 1998. Hosted by Carson Daly, it ran every afternoon at 3.30 right when kids were getting home from school. 
and at its peak attracted 800,000 viewers a day. The format was pretty simple. A live show that counted down the top 10 music videos of the day as voted on by fans over the phone. Plus, there were appearances and performances by the biggest names in pop, which often attracted screaming crowds of fans outside the Times Square studio. Before social media, TRL was essentially the pop culture mecca. Everyone from Britney Spears and Eminem to Mariah Carey and Destiny's Child performed on the show. But TRL is probably best known for its role in the boy band phenomenon of the 1990s and early 2000s. Dedicated fangirls kept videos by Backstreet Boys and later NSYNC at the top of the countdown for weeks on end. The two groups basically had a stranglehold on TRL's daily number one spot that lasted for about four years. Eventually, TRL producers had to invent a rule that videos that spent 65 days at number one were retired in order to allow other acts and their fan armies to taste victory. The band that would battle it out with the Backstreet Boys on TRL was another invention of Lou Pearlman. You see, quite early on, around 1995, as Backstreet Boys were still struggling to break through, Lou Pearlman was secretly working on putting together his next boy band, who would be a direct competitor for his first group. Pearlman told The New Yorker in 2014 when he created NSYNC, he did so quite strategically. He said, My feeling was, where there's McDonald's, there's Burger King, and where there's Coke, there's Pepsi, and where there's Backstreet Boys, there's going to be someone else. Someone's going to have it. Why not us? The first person to join the new group was Chris Kirkpatrick. He was part of a doo-wop group that sang at Universal Studios in Florida, and the story goes that after Pearlman watched Chris perform at the park, he told the young singer he would finance a group if Chris could find other members to join him. Chris immediately called up 14-year-old Justin Timberlake, who was already a mini-star thanks to his role on the Mickey Mouse Club, but he was ready to take his career to the next level. Justin agreed to join Chris and then suggested a friend from the Mickey Mouse Club, J.C. Chazé, who took the third spot. Next came Joey Fatone, who was performing in the Beetlejuice show at Universal Studios and was already friends with both J.C. and Chris. For the fifth spot, initially Joey's friend, Jason Galasso, was recruited, but Jason backed out, saying he didn't like the musical direction they were going in. I'm sure he regrets that decision. So then Justin Timberlake's voice coach suggested 16-year-old Lance Bass, who was just going into his junior year of high school. At first, Lance's mom hesitated to let her young son join the group, but Justin's mom called her up and convinced her to let Lance make the trip to Orlando. With that, it was official. On October 1st, 1995, NSYNC formally became a group. And just a few weeks later, they performed in a showcase before about 300 screaming fans at Disney's Pleasure Island. After the showcase, Pearlman put the NSYNC members into a boot camp with choreographers, voice lessons, and tutors, just like he had done with the Backstreet Boys. Pearlman bought them a house in Orlando where they lived and practiced under his complete control. 
Yeah, when he creates NSYNC, he does so behind Backstreet Boys' back to the point where they're listed on documents under the name B5. So if for whatever reason, maybe Nick Carter's running through Perlman's mansion and happens to see a document, there's no like concern or there, no one's the wiser, really. The next year in 1996, NSYNC signed with Backstreet Boys manager Johnny Wright, and they soon landed a record deal with a German record company. Remember, Germany loves boy bands. And then just like Backstreet Boys, the guys from NSYNC went to Sweden to record their first few songs, which came out in Europe in the fall of 96. Tearing Up My Heart was a huge hit in Europe, and their self-titled debut album hit number one in Germany. But still, they were pretty unknown back in the States. Their debut album was eventually released in the U.S., and NSYNC toured around the country, playing at roller rinks. But they didn't really make a splash. That is until they made a fateful appearance on the Disney Channel. In the summer of 1998, Backstreet Boys were scheduled to perform a live concert that would air on Disney Channel. But they had to pull out because Brian Luttrell was undergoing heart surgery to repair a hole in his heart. NSYNC, waiting in the wings, stepped in to perform at the concert, which then aired repeatedly on the Disney Channel for the next six months. During that time, their debut U.S. album shot to number two on the charts. There was now another megastar boy band, and they were nipping at the heels of Backstreet Boys. Perlman, whether accidentally or on purpose, created another Beatles versus Stones scenario as the groups raced to become bigger than each other. This fabricated rivalry was a marketing dream come true. When Backstreet Boys found out that NSYNC were the creation of Lou Pearlman, the man they called Big Papa, they were stunned. Kevin Richardson told Rolling Stone in 2000 that he felt betrayed. He said, I'd lost my father to cancer, so I looked at Lou like a father figure, but I was naive, and he's a liar. We'll always remember him for helping us get started, but we'll also remember him for screwing us blind and building another group behind our backs. But that feeling of betrayal was really just the beginning. Backstreet Boys had been touring and selling millions of albums for four years. And during that time, they'd only received about $300,000 each. In 2019, Lance Bass told ABC News he was in the biggest band in the world and selling millions of records, but he couldn't even afford his apartment in Orlando or buy a car. Perlman, on the other hand, was raking in millions. Remember when I mentioned that contract he signed with the boys, the one where he made himself a sixth member of the band? Well, it meant that Perlman was taking one-sixth of everything, plus a 25% management commission, and he was being recouped for all of his expenses. So when the guys thought Lou was taking them all out for dinner and flying them around the world, they were actually paying for everything. It was all coming off their bottom line. Eventually, Brian Luttrell went to Perlman and asked him to make it right actually giving him the benefit of the doubt, hoping he would redo their contract in a way that made more sense. When he refused, Luttrell launched a lawsuit against Perlman, which the other guys eventually joined. But Perlman essentially doubled down, saying he owned the Backstreet Boys trademark and threatened if they didn't drop the lawsuit, he would prevent them from releasing any more music under that name. 
The case was an extremely complicated mess. Maybe it feels like a million years ago, there were a lot of protests of like fangirls outside of courtrooms waiting to see what would happen, um, which I think is interesting because in, in this period of time in, in boy band story, we don't really think of fangirls as being activists or, or really going on like protesting in any particular way. We to see that like maybe more current um, with this like new generation of, of fangirls and, and boy band enthusiasts. In the end, the Backstreet Boys bought back their freedom. They paid Perlman $29.5 million and ended their relationship with the man they called Big Papa. Not surprisingly, Perlman was also taking advantage of the guys in NSYNC. During two years of endless touring and promoting their debut album, Perlman covered their housing and food costs, but he only paid them a $35 daily allowance. Initially, the band was okay with that because they all assumed at some point there would be a big payout. In 1998, they thought that moment had come when Perlman flew the group and their families out to Los Angeles for what he called a check presentation ceremony and a celebration dinner at a fancy steakhouse. They went into the dinner thinking that they were about to become millionaires. Lance Bass recounts the scene in a documentary he produced about Lou Perlman called The Boy Band Con. He says, I open up the envelope, I see the check, and oh my gosh, my heart sunk. I couldn't believe the number I was looking at. The check was $10,000. And not to sound ungrateful, but when you compare it to how many hours we'd put into the group for years, it didn't even touch minimum wage at all. After the dinner, the guys had an attorney look over their contract, which he told them was the worst contract he'd ever seen in his entire life. What's the lesson here, kids? Always read the fine print. Anyway, what matters is that NSYNC discovered that Perlman had made himself a sixth member of the group and was raking in management fees and recoupments on top of that, just like he did with Backstreet Boys. The good news is the lawyer found a small loophole in their contract, which allowed the guys to end their relationship with Perlman without paying him any money. Big Papa tried to sue the guys for breach of contract and again said he owned the name NSYNC. Finally, though, in 1999, they were given the right to control their name and were released from Perlman's clutches. After Backstreet Boys and NSYNC broke free from Lou Perlman, their careers, which were already on an upward trajectory, exploded into the stratosphere. In 1999, Backstreet Boys released Millennium, their first number one full-length album and one of the biggest-selling albums ever. It featured a string of soon-to-be classics, including I Want It That Way, Larger Than Life, and Show Me the Meaning of Being Lonely. At the turn of the century, the Backstreet Boys were not only the biggest boy band on the planet, they were possibly the biggest boy band of all time. Here they are performing at TRL, a two-hour show that completely shut down Times Square. Millennium sold more than 9.4 million copies in 1999 and 1.1 million in its first week alone. It really was the golden age of pop music. Backstreet Boys and NSYNC were selling records by the caseload. And thanks in part to their success, the number of CDs sold annually in the United States increased from 207 million in 1990 to 937 million in 2000. 
So insane was the record-selling business that in 1999, a new category of bestseller was created, the Diamond Record, referring to albums or singles that sold 10 million copies or more. It's crazy because people always like point to this as like the most lucrative time for boy bands. But it, like like you said, it was the most lucrative time for music writ large. CDs were going for like 20 to 25 dollars. And because we were out of the single era, you're not buying single tracks. So if you like something you hear on the radio, you have to go shell out 20 bucks for each boy band you like. But this golden era wouldn't last for very long. Just as Millennium was shattering sales records... A teenage hacker in a suburban Massachusetts bedroom was quietly posting a revolutionary file-sharing service on the internet. Napster, created by 19-year-old Sean Fanning, completely changed the shape of the music industry. Within a few years, music would be on its knees as consumers freely swapped MP3 files, causing sales to collapse. But before that happened, NSYNC was also busy selling loads of records after escaping the grip of Lou Pearlman. In March 2000, they released their second record, No Strings Attached. Get it? They were no longer controlled by a puppet master. And the album sold nearly 2.4 million units in its first week with hits like this. Now, I should take a minute to acknowledge that Backstreet Boys and NSYNC weren't the only boy bands of the 90s. Their success, and in particular, their early success of Backstreet Boys, led to a string of copycats in the U.S., like 98 Degrees, B2K, and the Lou Pearlman creations LFO and O-Town. The latter was created during the ABC MTV reality television series Making the Band. There was also the English boy band explosion that operated independently from what was happening in the States. The massively popular group Take That was formed in 1989. A short time later, E-17 was positioned against Take That in a rivalry reminiscent of the Backstreet Boys versus NSYNC battle. There was also Boyzone and two of Simon Cowell's early successes, Westlife and Five. It really shouldn't come as a surprise that the boy bands that dominated the airwaves in the 90s had an impact on society. For one thing, they changed how we viewed male performers and masculinity. Unlike male-dominated rock bands of the past, boy bands were heavy on dancing and emotional lyrics. And suddenly, it was okay for male singers to belt out lyrics in a higher key for maximum emotional impact. more typical for female singers. Guys in the past had relied on wicked guitar solos to express their deepest feelings. Like all teen movements, the stars of the 90s and their fans eventually grew up. In 2001, NSYNC released another album, Celebrity, which sold nearly 2 million copies in the first week. Then they went on hiatus in 2002, which eventually turned permanent due to Justin Timberlake's breakout success as a solo artist. The Backstreet Boys released their fourth album, Black and Blue, in 2000, which sold one million copies in the first week and kicked off a successful tour. Then the group saw the darker side of fame consume A.J. McLean, who went to rehab in 2001. Nick Carter also struggled with sobriety and substance abuse. 
Backstreet Boys took a break until 2004, when it reformed and released another album, Never Gone, in June 2005, which reached platinum status. In 2010, Backstreet Boys joined forces with another group, New Kids on the Block, to create the supergroup NKOTB-BSB. They toured the world and were one of the first to take advantage of the wave of nostalgia that now grown-up fans had for groups of the 90s. There was also the 2017 Las Vegas residency, and their most recent album, DNA, was released in 2019 and topped the Billboard 200. And for the record, Backstreet Boys have never broken up. Kevin Richardson hasn't always been an active member of the group, though. As for Lou Pearlman, well, he died in prison in 2016 at the age of 62. In 2008, Pearlman was sent to jail for 25 years after he was convicted of running a $300 million Ponzi scheme. Pearlman was using the success of Backstreet Boys and later NSYNC to not only lure new talent, but also to convince would-be investors to pour their life savings into several of his fake businesses. And there were other allegations against Perlman that were never tested in court. Sexual misconduct allegations that were first publicly detailed in a 2007 Vanity Fair article. The article entitled Mad About the Boys outlined a series of accusations that Perlman was cultivating boy bands to curb his own sexual appetite. It stated that the first allegations of inappropriate behavior involving Perlman appear to have surfaced back in 1997 or 98. One incident centered on the youngest of the Backstreet Boys, Nick Carter, who in 1997 turned 17. Neither Nick Carter nor his parents, Robert and Jane Carter, will address what, if anything, happened. Perlman was never charged and denied all the allegations. Nick Carter himself, in recent years, has been embroiled in his own allegations of sexual misconduct. In 2017, Carter was accused by Melissa Schumann of raping her more than 15 years ago when she was a member of the girl group Dream. Carter denied the allegations and prosecutors in Los Angeles chose not to pursue the case because the statute of limitations had expired. Since the 90s, boy bands have come in all different forms, from Blink-182 to the Jonas Brothers and One Direction. And now, of course, there's K-pop and BTS, which have taken boy bands in a new direction. But the major difference, of course, is that they're primarily recording in Korean. And we've never seen like global ubiquity with a boy band um, that didn't perform in English, which I think is really exciting and sort of speaks to this new generation of young people that is curious about other cultures and languages in the world. And it makes me so excited. In a time when nothing seems certain anymore, it's nice to know that some things do stay the same. Like it or not, there will always be boy bands and there will always be teenagers who love them. Thanks for listening to this look back at one of the defining eras of the 90s. If you want to go further down the rabbit hole, I highly suggest you check out the 2015 Backstreet Boys documentary called Show Em What You're Made Of and the 2019 doc about Lou Pearlman called The Boy Band Con. And of course, Marie Sherman's book, Larger Than Life. It's filled with fun boy band facts and gorgeous illustrations. It would make an excellent gift for any fangirl or boy on your holiday list. I'll put all the info you need in the show notes. 
History of the 90s is available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, please don't forget to rate and review us. You can also go back and check out some of our older episodes, like episode number six, which takes a look at the Spice Girls and girl power in the 90s. If you've got an idea for a show, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at 1990s History. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. And you can also email me at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was hosted and written by me, Kathy Kinzora. Dila Velasquez is our producer. And sound design and final production was by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 